Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. A quick note before we start the show. If you love horror as much as we do, check out our new book, Death by Umbrella, The 100 Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons. We were recently written up in UK Horror Scene magazine, where they said, Not a page or sentence is wasted, and I genuinely can't think of another non-fiction horror movie book that's gripped me as much as this one in a long time. We're so glad they liked reading it as much as we did writing it. A note on this episode, 133 of the Really Awful Movies podcast, the clinking you'll occasionally hear in the background, that's ice from our drinks. Uh, we kick back with some Ryan Gingers, Canadian whiskey and ginger ale, to cool down in the midst of a summer heat wave. On with the show. Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? They're coming! The rats are coming! Thousands of them! Tell me. Tell me about Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then, something happened. Oh, good lord! It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. Hey. Hey, wait! There's something weird here. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com, part of the Crypt TV family. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw video drum. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. We're at downtown Toronto headquarters. Here's David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Yeah, Videodrome. His visionary Videodrome from 1983. You know, there's not many movies I consider to be a perfect movie, but this one is one of them. And it's interesting because revisiting it for, I'd say, the umpteenth time, mm-hmm. you know, preparing for this podcast, I'm watching it, and, I'm, and there's really not a lot 
going on in the plot department, but there's so much going on in the cerebral space, and there's so many ideas. And what you have going on here with Videodrome is you have incredible ideas mixed with unbelievably effective special effects, gruesomeness, your you know your typical Cronenberg uh, body horror. Not as much as in some of the other films, but it's there, and a real preciousness. Is that a word? It is now. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. Yeah, because I, I was a. I, this would be, I guess, fourth viewing, mm-hmm. and it's been a while since I'd seen it, and I was a bit worried because of, obviously, when you pigeonhole yourself in a specific time and place uh, and technology, you would think, okay, you know, what if someone made a movie about a phonograph, and then mm-hmm. you're watching that and going, okay, but it really relates in so many ways to today. It just happens to be the technology of the time, but it could be substitute for something else. Oh, it's amazing. It's fresh, and I was shocked by that. It's amazing, because in many ways, the movie is more relevant today than it was when it was made in 83. In 83, of course, it was television. That was everybody was sort of worried about, and, you know, uh, the medium is a message, Mark McLuhan. I mean, there's a lot of McLuhan-esque theory and philosophy in this one. And now, of course, it's the Internet, when McLuhan uh, postulated about TV, came to fruition, but he, the medium was different. Instead, mm-hmm. it was t- instead of TV, it's the internet. But the internet has become the new TV, you know, with YouTube and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been boning up on on all my uh, McLuhan theory mm-hmm. here. So I, I took a course in it at a university. Obviously, he's a University of Toronto guy, and really interesting stuff to see how his tetrad theory of media applies to Skype, and to radio, and to television and famously there's the example of Nixon versus JFK and their debates. Mm-hmm. Nixon had a face for radio right. as do arguably we do <laughs> and uh, people who listened to the debate thought Nixon won. Nixon won and then people watching it because of what McLuhan dubbed the overheatedness or of Nixon. He was too much for a visual medium. He was too intense and Kennedy was Mr. Massachusetts cool himself. He was, just, the, boy. he was the goal, yeah, and just writing his notes and he was better looking, so it was interesting how the TV viewers thought he won. So it was neat to revisit some mm-hmm. of the McLuhan stuff, speaking of Toronto, and to see a movie set in Toronto as Toronto, as which Toronto. is always a cheap thrill for us because yeah. we're tired of. Speaking of Cronenberg, Cosmopolis, I just saw, and that is New York in quotes, and Toronto does not substitute well for New York in that case. It was a bad movie generally, but... You know, it's funny because, and this is going off a little tangent, but what you said, I mean, I recently came back from a week in Montreal, right, for the uh, Fantasia Fest, and I spoke to a lot of people and a lot of, uh, you know, native Montrealers, and that's where I was from. I said, Toronto. They're like, oh, Toronto, I've either I've been there or I want to go there. It's like a cleaner New York, and we get that a lot. It's like a cleaner New York. Oh yeah, it was it was the famous phrase. It was New York run by the Swiss. Is that Peter Ustinov? Somebody, somebody. There's a famous saying about mm-hmm. Toronto. But yeah, I think that was more back then. Now it's a little grubbier, exactly, and a bigger, much bigger it's, than. It's not as clean, but at the same time, it's just not. It's still not New York. I mean, Toronto's an incredible city. It's lively. There's always something to do. We have some of the best food options in the world. Music, what have you, entertainment options, but. There's just something about New York that, you know, there's that, that pulse of electricity that runs through the streets. You well, can't you can't substitute Toronto for New York. No, and that, that's true. Uh, and this is a, a tangent. Apologies. But Second City, 
big comedy scene, Second City in Toronto and Chicago, which are both of these second cities. Mm -hmm. And they are in New York's shadow, and it's ironic or fitting, whatever it is, that Chicago and Toronto are sister cities. We're both in the shadow of New York, but yeah. But at the same time, I mean, Toronto has its, its charms, and it's, oh, it's yeah. a world-class city. Mm -hmm. And seeing Toronto represented on film as Toronto... Is and your street represented, which yeah. blew me away. There's a, a shitty uh, rent-by-the-hour motel on King Street, yeah. which is where we are. Yeah. And <laughs> I've always wondered... Uh, maybe at low points in my life, like maybe paying off my student loan or working like <laughs> shitty jobs and going like, what would it take to put me in there? Rent by the hour, uh, dismal flea bag motel. And yeah, it's it was neat to well, see that. My street has become completely gentrified. It, you know, King West is now, you know, the the new club district. Every TIFF? Uh -huh. TIFF, yeah, yeah, TIFF is right up the street. But I mean, when in, in the 90s, I remember coming down to King Street because it was a bar that I loved going to. It was called the Rotterdam. And right across the street was Four Eyes Only, the strip club, which is still there. <laughs> yes. And then there was nothing. Yeah. Warehouses, just warehouses and flop houses. And now King Street has become completely unrecognizable. But yeah, it was there, and I've, I've got a kick out of that too. Yeah, just amazing to, to see. And mm -hmm. uh, also, we've it feels like we've talked about this movie before because it's so infused with Toronto-ness, uh, whether it be Civic TV, oh. which is the station that we both grew up on that played the blue movies yep. at night, these softcore pornos that we really enjoyed on Friday nights, and that is direct inspiration right there. Two things, way back when, when we first started our site, Really Awful Movies, before we, we morphed into a podcast, I wrote a piece, I think it was a top ten horror films ever shot in Toronto, and I put video equipment as number one. So, there you go. And the second thing you mentioned about um, City TV, yeah, that, I mean, that's what Cronenberg used as in Civic TV. Channel 83 in this movie is an analog for City TV. Back in the 80s. Pun intended, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Very well done, yeah. Yeah, because back in the 80s, I mean, it was, it was a wild station. They would air anything and everything. And another very interesting thing about City TV, run by Moses Neimer, um, I wouldn't say that uh, Max Wren, the protagonist of this film, who was played by James Woods, I wouldn't say that he's a direct analog of uh, Moses Snymer, but there might be an element or two in there. Another very interesting thing is that back in the early 80s, TV stations would go dark around midnight. They would say, okay, now we've concluded our broadcasting day, they would the national anthem, <laughs> yeah. and then you get like a test signal for the rest of the night yeah. until it was like, you know, 7 a.m. or whatever. Yeah. Not City TV. City TV ran 24 hour programming. Original programming, not infomercials. They would run these late grade movies all through the night, and there were these, you know, these softcore sex films, these grindhouse films, and it was just a really, it was a real revolutionary uh, medium, medium yeah. station. And unfortunately, you turn on City TV today, it's a, it's a shell of what it once was. I think it was bought out by Rogers. It's mm -hmm. now part of like a big media conglomerate. Yeah, Moses Snyder has long since washed his hands of City TV. It's just not. Even at sister station, as much music, which is our version of MTV, etc. It's what was once revolutionary has now become establishment. It's now just become like any other station. But man, those glory days of City TV were something else. Oh yeah, and it's it's interesting for younger listeners. You just can't comprehend that television in its early days was not known for movies because it was a direct competitor with movies, mm -hmm. and they had their own thing. So they were doing drama and doing you know, hospital shows, detective shows. It was separate and siloed and different. And when 
video came around, Cronenberg himself said it blew his mind that people could have a storehouse of movies in their place. I mean, you have thousands of Blu-rays and DVDs here all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, but back then, yeah, he just could not conceive of a world, like the man's 73 years old, he could not conceive of a world where that could have happened. So obviously at the time, when everyone was stockpiling movies as if there was some kind of cinema Armageddon coming, he, he had to look at this technology that was taking the world by storm and uh, wonder what the outcome of that would be, and hence all the McLuhanisms that mm -hmm. we get here. And Well, okay, again, maybe in yet another tangent before we go off, before we discuss video drill proper, there is a cinema Armageddon happening right now. And it's Netflix and streaming. It's destroying physical media. And this library I have, I mean, it's... It's, it's obsolescent. In, it's, to use McLuhanism, like, it's done. In a few years, you will not have any player that will be able to play these things because the, as a medium, it will be gone. And it'll be, like, maybe revived in the sense that turntables have come back because of a niche interest by DJs, but yeah, who, who knows? Like, you always are reticent about investing in any new technology because something's going to come along and blow it out of the water. Depressing thought, but hey, it happened to all my CDs. What are you going to do with these things? Spent thousands of dollars on an album collection mm -hmm. and poof. Do what I do, man. Rebuy them on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take it to the UCD shop uh, mm -hmm. very soon, get a quarter piece for them, but... Anyhow, yeah, no, Video Videodrome is an unbelievable film. It's, as I said before, completely prescient, completely ahead of its time, in the sense that when it came out in 83, audiences did not know what to make of it. Kornberg was coming off successes. He was coming off, you know, scanners, movies that actually broke through to the American market, made a lot of money. This was made by a major studio, I believe it was Universal, they put money behind it, and it flopped hard. Not only did it flop at the box office, critically, it was eviscerated. Hmm. Critics didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know what to make of the... I guess some of two story, and also the the icky effects. I mean, you know, a lot of critics, as we have some of our favorite critics, were notoriously hard on horror. Roger Ebert being one of them, and they just would call it like a, a same with the the thing, Carpenter's the thing, a geek show. And it's amazing because Rick Baker worked on this movie, and the, some of these effects are mind blowing. They don't look dated in the least no. bit. And they look better now with all the CG going on. Oh it's just it's a revelation. It's just unbelievable. And how they accomplish some of these effects. So I watched a few. I have it on Blu-ray. I watched some of the behind-the-scenes uh, featurettes. Just unbelievable the ingenuity that these guys. You know how they managed to make that TV pulsate and expand. And oh yeah. Through. Oh, just amazing stuff. Well, it's it's interesting. I was going to. Uh, by way of this very lengthy introduction, ask you if you've heard of Star Ray TV. This is a I have not, no. uh, because a major f component of Videodrome is a pirate television mm -hmm. station. There's a guy in Toronto's Little India, okay. which is in the East End, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 20 minutes from us, who runs a pirate television station who's been fighting with our federal regulator to get his crap station on to the air and he put I think it's on tr channel 22 he's got a radius of maybe 10 kilometers so you get it only if you really live near the, e the Greek town little India in East End and this guy runs like bizarro programming I've never seen it but uh, I was at a party and friends were talking about it going like there's just some guy with his dog doing a show and he just puts it on regular television and of course you can't just do that because you need to apply for a broadcasting license and 
someone's going to come for you. And so he's been running this thing for years. He even had an article in Now Magazine. Mm -hmm. And I just think this stuff is, to me, so exciting. And he continues to do it now, even though the Internet is around. He does not use the Internet. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm competing with free channels. I don't want to compete with a billion and a half websites. I'm competing with Toronto stations, of which there are only so many, so I'm going to put out my bizarro programming. And this stuff excites me, because I used to seek this stuff out. Oh, yeah, and what I also love, too, was public access TV, where anybody and could put out a show, and it didn't matter what you were talking about or what talent or lack of you had. As you see, you, you know, 2 a.m., you turn on uh, Channel 10, and there's yes. some bizarre yeah. talk show, and you're just like, what the... F-? I mean, I think that's where... Tom Green started. Yes, uh, indeed. Ed the Sock mm-hmm. started, I and mean, he's a, a local Toronto personality. That For we sure, both love. Um, yeah, I mean, and public ask, access has sort of gone by the way. So yeah, or well, Mike Myers was inspired by this yeah, as well. Like these Wainsworth, corny yeah. channels that you paid for as part of your cable package. No one would want these channels. It's like, oh, we're going to a farmers market and we're going to interview the people there. Like this is very, very, very low key local programming. Yeah. And yeah, there Mike Myers a, spoofed it terrifically. Great counterpoint when you'd watch, let's say. You know, our, we would get our NBC affiliate from Buffalo, and you'd be watching, you know, the, the, the stuff coming out of, you know, California, yeah. versus these, these really low-key, low <laughs> low-budget, bizarre, you know, this, this is, the, SCTV did a lot of uh, yes. spoofing of, you mm-hmm. know, public access and so on, and then, as in another film I'm looking at right now in my collection, UHF, uh, which came out in 1989. Yeah, Yankovic, Weird Al Yankovic, great, yeah. Great movie. But, again, Videodrome. Yeah. So what is Videodrome? Well, uh, it's basically snuff television Mm -hmm. put over the airwaves through satellite, and it emanates from the steel city of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, for some reason. Yeah, (laughs) and then after some noodling with the uh, the dial on the on the from Malaysia Patron. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and then we find out it's this transgressive, subversive uh, programming that. Really, right now, you would find on YouTube via, or probably Vivo via 4chan or Reddit, mm-hmm. this sort of dark, dark web kind of underbelly of what you could normally get. So you would get S and M, violence, and everything. Mutilation. That's mm-hmm. what they kept saying: sex, murder, and mutilation. And Max Rand owns this cable channel, Channel 83, Civic TV, and they're a small station. And in order to compete with the big guys. They're going to put on the most salacious programming possible, and Ren is looking for something. At the beginning, he's 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 sourcing material he's sourcing to try material. and find what's good. Yeah. And he goes to a couple of Japanese pornographers. In fact, <laughs> one of the pornographers ended up becoming, uh, I believe, a councilman in Toronto, David Sabuchi. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And you look at this. Uh, it was a Japanese pornography, and there was this big wooden dildo, and <laughs> Samurai Dreams. And he's watching. He's like, oh, it's too soft for me. Yeah, and and he he gets another one that's like this uh, uh, scene of Caligula. Yeah, and they're eating grapes, and it's from ancient Greece, and it's it's called Apollonia and Dionysus, Mm -hmm. or no, something like that. I don't know, which is basically the two parts of the human emotional condition: reason and. Emotion. So I thought that was a terrific little Cronenbergian in joke for a little porno, mm-hmm. like reason and re- and and emotion. So that was neat. Yeah. So he's trying to source the stuff. No, this is not. You know, this is Caligula. This is dull stuff. I want to push the envelope. I want something for, 
Well, futuristic. I want yeah. something now. You know, I don't want something from the. So he has this this guy working for him, this guy Harlan, who is able to decode these pirate signals, and he finds for like not even a minute of this video drum signal, and he shows it to his patrons. He keeps calling patrons. <laughs> kind of and uh, right away, he becomes Rand becomes obsessed with finding out the source of the signal and tracking down video drone and bring it to his airwaves. And the moment he saw a video drone, I mean, that was the end of Max Ren. It brought him into this rabbit hole of, of, of violence and disassociation, hallucination, obsession, and madness. And through looking for a video drone, he's introduced to a very unique figure. And I'm not talking about Debbie Harry as Nikki Brand, because mm-hmm. I, I kind of thought her character was fairly undeveloped, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about uh, Brian Oblivion. Cronenberg himself has gone on record as saying that Oblivion, who was a media prophet, was influenced by Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. And Oblivion is this guy that will only talk in monologue <laughs> yes. on TV, but it'll only talk on TV, on TV. Yes. In other words, there's a talk show, Ren is on there defending his programming, saying it's a Nikki brand, that's, and talking to Oblivion, but it's a TV set where Oblivion is beaming in his thoughts. It's like he's disassociated. He's, he's just saying his uh, sort of stream of consciousness philosophy, and of course the, the most famous one is that television is the retina of the mind's eye. Yeah, which is epigrammatic, perfectly capturing McLuhanisms. He has to get in touch with Oblivion through, I guess, his daughter to try and find out more about this... Uh, underground phenomenon, which yeah. he has to become an investigator here. Because Brian Oblivion is this enigmatic figure, and yet he has this, he operates as this mission, the cathode ray mission, where it's sort of like, instead of giving you a come on in, you're a vagrant, you're homeless, let's give you some soup and a warm blanket, let's let you watch on TV. And this is being run by Oblivion's daughter, Bianca Oblivion. Yeah, what a, what a bizarre conceit, eh? Because mm-hmm. when you think about it, like, the modern-day library has been completely transformed into... Nobody gets homeless books. Shelter, a homeless shelter, yeah. I wasn't going to say, but it's, it's like, no, I'm one of the few people who peruses the stacks for books. Yeah. It's mostly students who can't afford the internet mm-hmm. go in there and use the screen. And the, the the fact that there are books in there is almost incidental and perfectly McLuhan-esque right there. And Whereas, you know, a whole bunch of vagrants and bums just either just, sleeping on the tables or perusing the internet, too. Yeah, yeah and just so to find... Like the Catholic Green Mission. Is yeah, and uh, it was amazing because it's called the Scott Mission, which is... Uh, I don't know how international that is. The Scott, I don't know, but it's a homeless shelter in Toronto. So this, the cathode ray mission, you get people who are need their fix. So they're getting a fix of beams from the cathode ray tube, the television. Mm-hmm. What, a, what an amazing little vignette. Yeah, there's so many interesting scenes in this movie. So as Ren is investigating further and... We mentioned Deborah, Deborah Harry, Debbie, Debbie Harry from Blondie. She's billed as Deborah Harry in this mm-hmm. one. I think it was her first major film. Yes. Role. As he gets introduced to her, he shows her video drone. She's an interesting character in the set. A little underdeveloped since earlier, but she's masochistic. She takes cigarettes and like burns it, you know, butts it out on her breast, and she asks uh, Rand to cut her a little bit, and he pierces her. All this crazy stuff, and she's fascinated by video drone. She wants yeah, to she to wants to audition. Yeah, to audition, and this, and he's like, "Don't go. This is, it's, this is dangerous stuff. This is the real deal." And as he's investigating and peeling back the layers, he's starting to enter into maybe domains, worlds he shouldn't be, and he's starting to hallucinate. 
Yeah, and this, this is the part, kind of thing that really put it in the present day as well, because some of the programming from Videodrome is similar to the dispatches released by ISIS. There's this grainy quality of snuff films, and I, that really touched me as well, and I thought this is really au courant, really modern day as well. This mm -hmm. stuff is disturbing stuff, mm -hmm. and it makes you wonder how this could have ever made it on television. But, again, they don't really explore that. This is just, he's trying to push the boundaries for what is allowable at the time to put on his TV station. But, yeah, again... But, see, the thing about Videodrome is that Rand thinks that Videodrome is going to be appealed to the masses, right? But there's only certain people that would be that would be attracted to Videodrome. And because Rand is one of these people... <laughs> Like, I don't want to get too far into, like, you know, who's doing what, and, you know, there's a character named Barry Convex that comes in, played by the great Les Carlson, and he's a optometrist? He is, and this is the most direct uh, tie-in to McLuhan, as who famously said, guys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. So that was one of his most famous sayings, because he thought that... Uh, with the exception of dark glasses, like if someone was wearing shades, he found them more mysterious, and that was someone who would be more enticing to men, but not regular glasses, because you can see directly into the eyes. So the eyes, obviously the window to the soul, mm -hmm. it's highly ironic that this guy is involved in this thing, his name is Convex, which mm -hmm. is yeah, how the lens is ground yeah, down, yeah, and I thought, exactly. oh, this is just terrific, he's got the insights, he's the oracle, he can see beyond mm -hmm. what is present now. The moment, like, without going too far into spoiler territory, the moment that Rand saw that signal for the first time, he was fucked. He was in deep, and he, he couldn't get out. There was something going on way beyond his comprehension. And not only is he hallucinating, but he's going through some extremely unique metamorphoses. Uh, his his <laughs> body, I mean, this is, let's, just, let's not mince words, his stomach becomes vaginal. He yes. gets this opening in his stomach, which is a vagina, and he... he places a gun inside the stomach, he can't get it out, and later on, they're placing video cassettes within his stuff, so he becomes a living... A living piece, piece of technology. technology. Yeah, he, this, he morphs with the technology. Yeah, and, and this is the, you know, the melding of the body and technology, and... Well, as, and this is just a reference to Brian Oblivion, because he is only living... As technology, mm -hmm. his he we find out he's deceased, and his dispatches this are just oblivion, being yeah. oblivion is just uh, a set of data points. He's just he's thousands talking of to thousands of recorded tapes. Yeah, he his actual line this is what uh, his uh, Bianca says is that he felt that public life on TV is more important than private life in flesh. And when I think about the celebrity system today, and all these people that became famous for, for nothing but just being on. The idiot box are on YouTube, like your Kardashians, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. That's that's it. I mean, all we care about is their public life on TV. We don't care about their private life in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, that's not something else that Cronenberg sort of foresaw was this vapid celebrity culture we live in. Oh, for for sure. And well, it's maybe it'll give our medium here uh, legs far beyond our own demise here. Like, mm -hmm. Who knows who's going to be listening to this, assuming the technology is still extant, which it likely won't be, but our archival, like we are existing in a different time and place. Our voices are traveling all over the world, which McLuhan would have loved. We are being listened to in Asia uh, by people who are not listening to it instantly after we upload it. It's sometimes months, and it could be years later. This is so fascinating. And our voices have become, we've become 
friends with people over the airwaves because of the folksy medium of radio, and mm. we're in radio right now. Well, we, but that's what I love about podcasting is the democratization of radio. Mm-hmm. You and I, I mean, if we went, we never went to broadcasting school. We couldn't get on, you know. Uh, no, we couldn't get into broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but all we needed was, a, you know, an MP3 recorder and an account with, a, what do you call them, a hosting, what have you. Yeah, yeah. And boom. Now where our voices are being broadcast throughout the world, people are listening to us, which to this day still boggles my mind. It, it really does. <laughs> and when you think about like how, how technology changes, like he, he McLuhan has his theories about, uh, and in this film as well, Skype is basically communication writ large. Instead of just us talking, we could be in different hemispheres and time zones, but still, we could do this via Skype, and we have done it via Skype. And that is such an interesting medium. It's an extension of just face-to-face chat. The gun is just an extension of a fist. So you Mm -hmm. punch someone, the gun is just a more broad Mm -hmm. version of a fist. So when the gun factors into this movie, it becomes part of Ren, Mm -hmm. and the cassettes become part of him. He becomes a cyborg, uh, half-man, half-whatever he becomes. And this is obviously becoming more and more commonplace because people have chips implanted in them whereas previous you would have had a bracelet saying i'm diabetic or whatever you're so paramedics could see when they treat you what you're affected by now you have stuff implanted under the skin mm-hmm. that you can scan and say hey this guy has type b blood or whatever it is and the other thing too about you know ren becoming uh, a walking almost piece of technology i mean the technology fuses itself with ren's body but it's not that dissimilar to today when, I mean, you have people who go through their daily existence for, let's say, 12 to 14 hours a day, except for when they're sleeping, with a smartphone in their hand, <laughs> yeah, yeah. looking at it, using it, playing with it. Yeah. I see people at, at, at a restaurant, two people sitting across each other at a table, they're not interacting, they're looking at their, their, their smartphone. Yeah, and infamously the Pokemon phenomenon, Pokemon where people have now, been yeah. mugged and uh, lured by criminals who are taking advantage of people's obsessions with Pokemon to mug them as they wander down some alley to catch Pokemon. So yeah, really, it's, it's become an extension, and also it's changing our brains. So he was right in the sense that as we become more invested in this technology, look at the Japanese smartphone-based novels that come out, like based on these little snippets of conversation because of people are changing how they're interacting and how they're engaging with the printed word and to society's detriment everyone is obsessed with quick communication mm-hmm. and no one writes emails that are longer than 150 words because they won't be read so everything is in the form of a text message and so how the the medium has transformed how we talk exactly and, and we are technology now and technology is us and the other thing too is that not only are we technology, because like I said, the, this smartphone is almost like a living extension of our... Have you ever left the house and forgotten your phone at home? I, I purposely leave it at home because uh, I want to experience, like when I go, I, I bike around the city and I bike by the lake. I want to experience like the wind rushing mm. through me and the cars opening their doors to almost kill me. I want an experience of something that's real and tangible. Like, I purposely, I, I can't deal with the phone when I'm out to do that, but sometimes you feel you feel really 
compromised by not having it. It's I, very I'm, strange. I'm ashamed to admit this, but there was one time when I was meeting a mutual friend of ours at a bar, and to get to the bar, I had to walk, let's say, six blocks. And three blocks in, I realized that my <laughs> phone was not on my person. It was back home charging. I actually walked back to get that phone, because without the phone, I felt naked. I felt a part of me was... was yeah, it, it's true. But as someone who held out as a Luddite for as long as humanly possible before getting a phone, finally, it hasn't affected me as much, but now, and you always say you're not going to let it affect you. Invariably, it does. You cannot hold out against this thing. Mm -hmm. I said I would never get data. I get data. Everything that they add, I'm going to get. I'm, in, I'm a convert. I'm an adopter now, and I'm all in, like a poker game. I used to be Forget it. Leave my cell phone at home all the time. Now I want the latest and greatest. Yeah, and yeah. anything that Samsung, please sponsor us, has to offer. <laughs> like they make the greatest phones. Yeah. But yeah, it's just I can't believe what I've turned into. Yeah. And it was like, we are technology, technology is us. I mean, the fact is, too, um, there are people who are fully addicted to the Internet. And it is an act, it's in the, what is it, DSM-4. DSM-4, yeah. yeah, or it's DSM. It's, it's yeah. an actual... Diagnostic um, and Statistical Manual for Psychological yeah. uh, Disorders. It's an actual disorder. And the reality is, you know, yeah, in the, in the past you say oh, people are addicted to television or video games or what have you, but there was a difference because those forms of, of entertainment, those mediums, were somewhat inanimate. Okay, now with video games they actually play over, you know, with other people through across the galaxy, whatever, the atmosphere. But back then... It's like you watch a television show in the 80s, let's say, Dukes of Hazard or something. It's not interacting with you. Yeah. The internet is not an inanimate medium. It's very animate. It interacts back. It becomes your friend. And there are some people who replace the entire real world for the virtual world of the internet. Those gamers that play World of yeah, Warcraft. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, it's just it's so fascinating. And all of these things are touched on in Videodrome. And yet, it's also an extremely effective horror movie because the images are profoundly disturbing, profoundly disgusting, and just wonderful. And then, of course, what's come out of Videodrome, I mean, you know, the line has resonated for long time, is long live the new flesh. And that's just something just unbelievable. I mean, what is the new flesh? Not really expand upon, but mm. it's up to the viewer to decide what the new flesh is. But in my opinion, that's what the new flesh is. It's what we are now. It's reality mixed with a virtual world. Yeah, and VR. changing our brains mm. for the for the worse to accommodate uh, new technology that maybe ruins us, mm. and and compromising the body, the the flesh repeatedly being breached. Uh, there's a scene with a uh, with Debbie Harry's character, the therapist, and and Max Wren is piercing her ears, and it was pretty gross to watch. There's the gun that he inadvertently slips into his. Um, into his abdomen, there's the penetration of videos into his stomach. There's always a breach of your physical body, and that that stuff I find, you know, that's the hallmark of horror, really, right? You get eviscerated, you get stabbed, you get shot, whatever. There's always a breach, and it's it's really intense too, as they reach right in to get that video cassette out, and. He just explains it away as a rash at first, mm -hmm. and then finally when it kicks in, it's really incredible. Like, Rick Baker just takes it to a new heights, mm -hmm. like the, the physical effects. And these, the video, practical. these video cassettes go from 
plastic, plastic to pulsating pieces of material to actual like almost like living flesh. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, it, this is this movie is um, in many ways it's a mind fuck, you know, but it's so rife with subtext, so rife with interpretation, and as I said before, so prescient. You know, I, I've said it time and time again. When it comes to the horror auteurs, David Cronenberg is my absolute favorite. And yeah, I mean, he's his latest. You're mentioning. I haven't even seen Cosmopolis because I don't want to. I know it's not. Very yeah, good. it was just. But when he was firing all cylinders, there was nobody like Cronenberg because he imbued the genre with intelligence. And I'm not saying others didn't. Many did. But there's just something about you know it's not very many filmmakers whose name becomes an adjective. Hitchcockian, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, Cronenbergian. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much entered a, a popular lexicon because any time you examine the, the nature of the body and uh, versus the machine or the body turning against you, the, you know, disease of the flesh, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's Cronenbergian. And I, I, you know, David Cronenberg is head and shoulders above all the domestic auteurs as far as I'm concerned. And I personally think that Videodrome is his best film. Hmm. I really do. Wow, I'm trying to... Uh, I don't know even know if I can dispute that. Is I was so taken with Crash in a way that I really wasn't when I first saw it because I, it just went right over my head. That's another melding of technology mm. and machine exactly, and yeah. psyche. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just fantastic. And I recently revisited Existence, which I saw in the theater and I found it kind of underwhelming because at the time VR was the thing. And they keep saying virtual reality is going to be the thing. The Guardian this year said virtual reality is the next big thing. And they keep they were they were demonstrating, you know, Mm. VR movies. I mean, they're trying yet again to bring it back. Yeah, and even in this this film, they allude to that when uh, Convex. Uh, meets up with Ren and displays some of the technology that he's working on and puts Ren in this VR headset and his head is pulsating in this uh, orange-red like uh, colored device that looks pretty much like VR does today and it did back then so the same way and we keep anticipating this happening and more and more as we uh, train for different uh, vocations you get like your flight simulator for uh, fighter pilots or or commercial jet pilots or doing you know distant surgery where you have a surgeon in one city working robotically to you or, know fix something like it's just so or drone technology yes you can yeah the shit out of yeah it. unfortunately yeah you know, it's, it's 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 disturbing yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. and he was he had enough foresight to see in eighty three how this would all go down and. Uh, made me excited to watch this because you get, I got to revisit some McLuhan. Understanding the media is a great book. Uh, I watched a little clip of John Landis, John Carpenter, oh, and Cronenberg talking about their Being work by Mick Garris. Yeah. yeah, holy crap! That, I highly recommend that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the McLuhan Center, University of Toronto, has I think his son is on the faculty, Eric McLuhan, and the stuff is uh, apart from like it's he used to be the most famous academic in the world in the 70s, uh, along with Timothy Leary, you know, tune in, drop out, take acid, all this stuff. He's infamously in the Woody Allen movie where he says, you do not understand my work, and he makes a cameo there, but his work is being revisited now and appreciated now because of its prescience, and it seemed dated at the time, but he's the man who brought us the global village, which is 
popular lexicon, even though he uh, thought of a global village as a bad thing because uh, villagers are provincial, they don't know anything, they're not worldly, they're not sophisticated, and they bicker and gossip and are nasty to one another. There's a reason there's villagers with pitchforks going after somebody mm -hmm. and trying to kill them because this is how they are. So the global village is not a good thing. And this is, we see this all over the place with the mentality people have in new media behaving terribly to one another. The bullying, oh, the nastiness that you get on YouTube, you know, it's, by the 50th comment, it's what is it, Godwin's Law? You have a reference to Hitler? It, and yeah. it's just like, oh, a reference to the N-bombs and like you know, anti-Semitism and anti-women yep. like, and just, oh my I God. Think, think like, we're be, not being brought together necessarily. There should be a new version of Godwin's Law now, and, I, and I, this is what I propose, and it's called Think About the Children. Because, <laughs> you know, whenever there's something about morality or what have you, like I'm thinking a lot about, you know, the bathroom bill and so on and so forth. And, you know, this is progressive. Like, you know, just like, this is things that, you know, the times are leaning towards. But always something goes by the eighth or ninth comment it always goes back to you know the scripture and think about the children mm -hmm. oh the children these poor innocent babes in the woods and except we have to protect them and yeah it's just it's you know even facebook i mean i i, I can't even go past like 10 comments on anything that's posted because what happened what, what is a civil discourse just becomes it gets bogged down between two people just going back and forth oh yeah and every so often i'm one of those people but then I just say, enough, I can't do it. It's like, yeah, it's, wall. I'm it's talking like, to somebody I've never met before, I just, he's a friend of a friend of a friend, and we're debating something like gun control in the United States, I'm just like, you know what, dude, like, ugh. I'm yeah, I've, I've unfollowed everyone on, on Facebook because I just don't want to be sucked into the rabbit hole that Max Wren found himself in, where you just become uh, obsessed with these, these little uh, battles, and you have to step out from it and uh, live in your own flesh without being tied to this being tethered to the digital world and you know obviously this is we're part of it you know we we're multimedia social media hounds and adoptees we're everywhere and we and we're on reddit we're on twitter we're on facebook we're recording this digitally but still like, we know it's place we know it's yes. we exist in cyberspace yeah exactly and whenever you're listening to this you know <laughs> This is how we're reaching you, and we realize the irony and decrying the technology in a way, but we know its place, and we know our place, and you have to step back from it. But you have to step to this movie, because it will put everything in context mm -hmm. of how mass media is affecting us. And you just substitute Videodrome for or one of these dark web, all these awful sites where people are punching each other, or you have a site where like some... Uh, someone gets hit by a car or something, all this terrible crap that's there's video of, like uh, closed-circuit television, of someone robbing a store. There's so much online that is disturbing to watch, mm -hmm. and it's like a snuff film that's accessible to anyone, regardless yep. of their age. So mm -hmm. we're entering a new world. So, I mean, as we're talking, I, I think we can sort of skew the whole what did we learn, because this, this mm -hmm. whole podcast is busy. what are we learning, because this film is n rife with intelligent ideas and warnings and discourse and subtle little uh, little in jokes and uh, I, I was particularly taken with the optometrist conference I thought that was hilarious yeah, it, was it, was the, it was based like geez I've never been to a trade show like this they had dancers they had a theme of uh, the Medici family 
and they, you know, all these opto- optometrists were there, and they had dancing, and the speaker, guest speaker is there, like, what, what kind of, in what world would this happen? Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was just terrific. Yeah. So, instead of saying what I learned, I'm going to say, David Cronenberg, I salute you, you're, you're wonderful, you're one of, I, one of, I feel one of my country's proudest exports. Yeah, I agree. One of the greatest, greatest artists that we've produced. You know, forget about the group of seven. Mm-hmm. I don't, oh, I, I, I don't I, even I, like their paintings. No, I, I, I like some of them, yeah. you know. Tom it's, Thompson but, and all of that. Yeah, yeah Tom Thompson being my favorite, and he died a very mysterious death in the in his canoe overturned, and which is a Canadian way to go. Like that's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> your, your your body goes missing, and then but yeah, an interesting painter, but for sure. And it's exciting to see his son. Uh, following in his footsteps with a, with a quite exemplary, I thought, as a first-time effort, antiviral, yeah, which I we just, urge people to check out. I it's, do, but I'm still waiting for the follow-up. You know, I mean, he made one good film that can mm-hmm. only be described as Cronenbergian. I mean, I want to see what he does next. I want to see if he can establish his own voice that's not so indicative of what his father was putting out. True. I want to see a follow-up. It's when did an antiviral come out? About three, four years ago. Uh, yeah, I guess in 2013. Instead uh, of, yeah. I, I would urge instead of uh, checking antiviral, I would I would um, urge our listeners to read Consumed, which is a novel that Cronenberg put out about two years ago, which, in many ways, touched on a lot of the themes in Videodrome, and is is what I think is almost like the screenplay to the lost Cronenberg movie. Nice. Well, he's getting his critical yayas out there because he's finding it increasingly difficult to fund his projects because, well, frankly. They don't do well, with the exception of Dead Zone and, what is it, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure the box office for Scanners. I'm well, sure that was really good, but the last few, I mean... Well, this is pretty well. Yeah, well. but I mean, like, uh, the patents and stuff, he's, he's been derailed a little bit, and I would like to see him do something unabashedly commercial, mm. and ideally something but in the horror space. He's at that point now in his career, he, it's, it's all about what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. He, he could just say a fuck you to the industry. I've done what I've done, I've said what I've said. You know, commercial um, uh, expectations mean nothing to me anymore. I'm just going to create my art. And I kind of like when artists get to that point because they can make things really, really good or really, really shitty. And, you know, with Cronenberg, I mean, yeah, I mean, I haven't watched Cosmopolis or Maps of the Stars. I liked the, the Freud Young movie. A dangerous method. Yeah, I I now have to revisit it because I was, might have been unfair towards it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I was thinking, too, like, yeah, Cosmopolis to me was too much like a waking life. It was a one-note, one-way dialogue of just blather and economic theory in the guise of a movie. It didn't hold any sway. I'm not a fan of Don DeLillo. Mm-hmm. I have his Underworld book. I uh, do too. Oh my god. I, I think I've read about 100 pages. Yeah, well, that's more than I've read. I've, I've owned that thing for 10 years. I've maybe read 30 pages. It's so dense and so yeah. obtuse, I cannot take it. Although White Noise is pretty good. Did you read White Noise? No, but if, yeah. if Cronenberg is infamous for filming unfilmable books, like there's a gag in The Simpsons where... Uh, you know, Nelson, Muntz, and Bart go to the cinema to see Naked Lunch, and they they come <laughs> they come out of the cinema, and they said, "Boy, that was like a misleading title, something to that effect." And yeah, and that was uh, like Burroughs is supposed to be unfilmable. I love Burroughs. I've read everything he's ever done. He's such a out there guy. He's an amazing prose stylist. I can't really take Delillo. Cosmopolis is too verbose by half. It just meanders on. Uh, I, I'm just waiting for him to ditch Pattinson. I don't know if this is his new muse. I don't care for him. 
he was putting on this bad New York accent too. It was just a shite movie. Get back on the train. Do even a, a Russian gangster movie like what the hell? Eastern Promises was just dynamite. Yeah, yeah. It was just amazing. So, more Vigo. Well, yeah, exactly. Less Pattinson, more Vigo. Yeah. Maybe don't uh, try and adapt Infinite Jest or what have you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, the director's cut of that would be like four and a half hours. Like, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, would be four yeah. and a half hours. But yeah, anyway. incredible. No, it'd, be, it'd be wonderful if Cronenberg came back to making quote-unquote Cronenbergian movies. But you know what? What he's done, the man can, he can rest on his laurels. He is just, I hold him in such high esteem. If there's one human being on this planet who I would do anything to interview, it's David Cronenberg. Yeah, and, I, and I'm excited too because, oh damn, now the, uh, the the title of the movie escapes me. It was one he did along with Stereo. It was a short film that he shot at the Ontario Science Centre, which is a local science museum in Toronto. And I, I want to see this thing. Uh, something of the future? Uh, I'll have to, I don't recall. I've uh, seen Stereo, but I don't know. Oh, okay, because there, there it was one of his early films. He was probably in his 20s when he was considering moving out to L.A., mm-hmm. and that's something I really would like to see. And really, if, if Cosmopolis is his worst film, which it probably is, you could do way worse than that when you consider some of the auteurs and some of the duds they've made, where you just go, oh, this is just a real misfire. Like, Cosmopolis was bad, but it wasn't terrible. It was a 5 out of 10. It was watchable. It had some good ideas. But, yeah. Uh, come back. Come back to your roots. You know, we, we need him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited. Interesting to see what he's doing next. Yeah. And we're going to obviously be in agreement over what we're going to give this. I don't uh, know, like, I'm giving it 5 stars. Oh, okay. I'm going to give it a 4. Okay. Uh, just a maybe 5 or 6 minutes over long, but barely noticeable. Really, really awesome. Special effects, mm-hmm. terrific idea-driven thing. Uh, Sonia Smith was pretty great as Bianca the daughter Oblivion, of Oblivion. Yeah. Some the pirate TV guy was really cool. There's neat performances. It's great to see our city and all its mm-hmm. glory yeah. from you know your street to Chinatown and everything in between. So check it out. And for more, check out reallyawfulmovies.com. Uh, genre film reviews of all stripes, predominantly horror. And, of course, new episodes of the podcast uploaded every Friday. And we shall talk to you soon. Take care. and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.